The true story of Stuart Long, the boxer turned priest, is a tale of family heartache, suffering, and redemption. And the two stars of the new film, Mark Wahlberg and Mel Gibson, are together to talk about Father Stu in a world over exclusive. He's a rock and roll Hall of Fame legend, still going strong after 60 years in the business. Dion returns to tell us about The Wanderer, a new stage musical based on his amazing life. What can we learn from some of the great female heroes of the Bible? Fox News host Shannon Bream shares her timely new book, The Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak. Finally, editor-in-chief of the CatholicThing.org, Robert Royal, joins us from Rome with an update on the latest news from the Vatican. The World Over begins right now. Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have a very special show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. Let's get right to it. We have something special for you, an exclusive interview with Mark Wahlberg, Mel Gibson, stars of the new film Father Stew. Joining them as writer and director of the film Rosalind Ross. I sat down with them all at Sony's studio, which is the old MGM lot in L.A. We talked about the movie, how it came to be, and the incredible story of Father Stuart Long, the subject of the film, a fighter-turned-actor who smashed into his calling in dramatic fashion. Mel Gibson also discusses the current state of his Passion of the Christ sequel. Here's my exclusive interview with Mark Wahlberg, Mel Gibson, and Rosalind Ross. Mark, you've been all over the country with this movie. I mean, screening after screening. What's been the reaction to those who are faith-based as well as folks who perhaps aren't? Uh, just how moved they are by the movie, the story, how inspired they are, how much hope they're finding in the story. It's, uh, it's amazing to see people laughing and crying and in the midst of tears and more laughter erupts. Mm. You know, I haven't been in the theater for a long time, and for the first oh. time in, you know, over two years to see it with a full audience and see the reaction was... Uh, Incredible. It made all, all the risk worth it, for sure. What, what surprised you as you watched it with them? Audience always tells you something different than you imagined you put there. When and where they laugh, the difference between the laughs that a movie gets when you're w watching it amongst industry people as opposed to an audience in Boston or in mm -hmm. Chicago or uh, in Dallas, for that matter. But, uh, but really, you know, people moved by, by the story in a way, because it, it, it obviously it affect, it affects everybody in a different way, but it definitely mm -hmm. affects everybody. Now, Mel, this movie's premiering Holy Week, which is familiar territory. To, you're, if Johnny Mathis is Mr. Christmas, you may be Mr. Holy Week, and this guy's going to be, you know, chasing your tail. What? what <laughs> give, give me the importance of why uh, this is premiering now during Holy Week, and what that might uh, accent in the audience as they go to see it. Well, I think a lot of people at this time of the year, they kind of take stock of themselves. Mm -hmm. They're introspective about who they are, where are they going, what's the purpose of their life, what's their journey, where are they at in it. And uh, something like this, I think, it, it, it's a contemplation on it's someone else's life. Mm -hmm. And it's an exemplary life. And, um, and it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of, it reaffirmed me when I watched it because it says, you know, no matter where you come from, and... Uh, 
no matter what what afflicts you, you know, you can triumph and you can, you know, you can grow through that and, and, and gain merit and, uh, and hand it to other people. Rose, you wrote, you directed this movie. Um, you're not Catholic, but I have to tell you, this may be one of the most Catholic contemporary movies anybody's likely to see. How did you find that, um, that understanding of suffering and how at times the pain and the suffering in life can lead you to your ultimate destination, to, to, to what God intends for you? Father Stu was the living embodiment of, of grace and strength in suffering. Mm. And, you know, you hear it from anybody whose life he touched, um, that he was incredibly grateful for what afflicted him and, mm. um, and had such sort of dignity and, and strength in it. His life is such a beautiful example of humility, you know, mm. of, of you've got this guy who was a, who was a fighter who fought everybody, you know, an opponent in a ring, a guy in a bar. He fought the hand that was dealt to him in life. He fought for his father's approval. And it wasn't until he found God that he realized he could surrender a bit, you know. Mm. And, um, and I think he learned that staying in the fight on your feet isn't always as effective as getting on your knees and admitting that you can't do it alone. Mark, I have to tell you, when we last talked, I know there was some concern about the language and that that might keep even religious leaders in dioceses at arm's length. The Diocese of Helena just came out with a review. I'll just read a little piece of this. They said, um, it's our hope that the redemptive story of Stu's, Father Stu's conversion will invite viewers to faith and strengthen believers. Um, are you surprised that they're accepting of the authenticity, of the, even that rough language, because it gives you a it gives you this guy in their world. I was a bit surprised that they had an issue with it initially. Oh, really? Actually, I, well, whoever got a glimpse of the script may have seen an F-bomb or two in the mm -hmm. first couple of pages mm -hmm. and been turned off by that. Um, but to have them see the movie and respond the way that they did was was the most important thing. So mm -hmm. to, to get their approval, most importantly, to get Bill's approval, uh, Father Bart, who is Stu's best friend, I mean, mm -hmm. and, and Archbishop Thomas. I mean, those are the people that I was really concerned with. Yeah. And to see them respond to the film in the way they didn't realize how necessary the language was mm -hmm. to be far more authentic and you know connect with real people because you yeah. hear this language everywhere you go mm -hmm. um, you know it was uh, it was important well and the journey I think it was essential that Rosie didn't intend to preach to the choir mm -hmm. yeah. you know it's yeah. a story for everybody well and also you you have to do justice to a kind of rough character he, he was. was in order to underscore how incredible his transformation was. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, you can yes. only put so much emphasis on, oh, shucks! Yeah. <laughs> you know, mm, <laughs> snakes in a bag! Yeah, yeah, gosh yeah. darn it, I swear to you! <laughs> but, but that being said, I mean, I do remember, like, after we're kind of in post-production, like, Rosie, you got to cut up some of these F-bombs. She's like, well, a lot of these you just added along the way. I was constantly pushing the envelope. <laughs> and we wanted it to be as edgy as possible because we thought, ultimately, you know, that would be the thing that people related to and the draw most. A younger audience. And then, of course, when you see, uh, when he makes the real commitment and, and when he finds his purpose, that that's mm -hmm. when, and that's unwavering, yeah. that, uh, you know, people would be encouraged by that. You know something, Father? There's a sign on the wall in my gym back home. Hope is not a tactic. I took that one to heart. Fought for everything I earned. This ain't no different. I think I know what God's doing here. <laughs> Seeing how I respond, I don't get my way. But I ain't giving up. Not on him or me.
I want you to reconsider your rejection. You are a pugilist with a criminal record. Well, look at St. Matthew, St. Augustine, St. Francis. I mean, some of the most remarkable figures in the history of the church are reformed men. Yes, but I think what the church needs now more than ever is to elevate the standard for a priest. No, what the church needs is somebody who's going to fight for God. That's me. But Mel, tell me about working on this role. Um, Bill is part of, really, it, it's, it's his story as well. This broken man leaves his family, his son he wants nothing to do with, and then they rediscover each other and he finds his role. What drew you to that, to the role as Rosie wrote it? You know, I mean, I've, I've got seven sons, right? Mm. And you don't do a perfect job with everybody. Mm. And, uh, you know, I've had to do that makeup stuff where you go by mm. and you go back and, and, and do another flyby and try and, you know, write things that maybe weren't perfect and talk about mm. stuff. And uh, those are the most fulfilling uh, things for me, uh, I think, uh, because we've all made mistakes. And I think Bill was probably in that boat, too. I, I know I talked to him on the phone, and just a few little things he said kind of told me who he was. He's not somebody who's terribly demonstrative, but he's, he's very deep in his feelings. There's a piece of the tale that is left out here, where after Stu becomes a priest, he continues his ministry, his family not only reunites, they convert to the Catholic faith. Oh, yeah. yeah, they were both baptized at the same time. His parents were baptized by uh, Archbishop Thomas, and Stu was literally on a gurney, uh, you know, tears streaming down his face assisted living at oxygen at the time and that was yeah that was his uh i think he was crowning achievement yeah, the, the fulfillment of his, his mission yeah yeah beautiful his did you write bill with mel in mind i did yes wow <laughs> he had no choice but to <laughs> <laughs> tell me about the touch of god that only comes through pain and suffering this is not something people necessarily want to deal with it's not something even Religion avoids many times. Why did you decide that you wanted to take this head on? Is that what appealed to you about his story? I think, you know, I've been, I've been uh, really focused on my faith uh, for quite some time. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had a very troubled past. It was my faith that allowed me to turn my life around and get, you know, back on, on the right road. Mm -hmm. And so I was always thinking about how could I give back and do more, utilize what's been given to me mm -hmm. for the greater purpose and what God really gave it to me for. And, you know, I, I always really admired what Mel did with the passion and that love letter that he created to the Lord. And I was like, wow, that, that certainly inspired me. And I always figured out, okay, there was, there was going to be a point where I was going to have to focus a lot more on me doing God's work and focusing less on trying to build up me as the kind of actor producer or my entrepreneurial endeavors, what I was doing. And so this thing just kind of came to me, you know, it was the same thing about getting involved in church more uh, and being a participant as opposed to being a spectator, uh -huh. starting even little things like doing the collection and then uh -huh. hosting the Festival of Families. And like, these are things that I always felt uncomfortable being a part of, but uh -huh. I knew I should be doing more. Uh -huh. And so now this is just, a, again, Stu kind of took me and utilized me to continue to, you know, so, amplify his voice and message. So it's a personal walk of faith oh, in many day, ways absolutely. for you. And this is, this is literally, this is the starting point to now me doing a lot more uh -huh. so uh yeah and you don't put it out there and then just say oh well I'll, I'll get to it next time or i got these other three movies i don't want to do then i'll do it i mean i'm, I'm making i'm putting myself out there uh -huh. i'm making sure that i continue to do well, it's a stuff. spectacular performance and the movie is it's 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 true and 
let's face it, there's a lot of cheese that enters the marketplace that's so-called faith-based. Yeah, you don't need faith when everything's perfect. You know, when you're, when you're a perfect individual, why do you need redemption? Mel Mark mentioned the passion. Um, that is such a, it's still such a seismic and iconic film for so many people. Um, I know you're working on the sequel. Almost every day somebody will come up and say, is the sequel done? Is he, is he working on the sequel? What's Mel doing with the sequel? What are you doing? Where is the resurrection? Well, it's, it's a huge subject. Yeah. And it's not just, it's just, it's not a linear narrative. Mm. So that in order to have it mean something and resonate for almost anybody that watches it, Again, you're not preaching to the choir. Mm -hmm. You have to have, you have to juxtapose the central event that I'm trying to tell with everything else around it, mm. in the future, in the past, okay. and in other realms. And it's that's kind of it's getting a little sci-fi out there. It's a um, it's a big story. It's a, it's a difficult concept, um, and it's it's taken me a long time to focus and find a way to tell that story in a way that really delivers to somebody who may know nothing about any of the central story, you know. Mm -hmm. So when can we expect a script, Mel? Well, well, I got two scripts. Randy Wallace did one. Yes. And and, and another fella did another one. Uh -huh. And, and uh, so I got the pair of them, and, and they're both good. And now you have to shuffle the deck. Kind of. It's a little bit like that. Plus, you know, you have to add your own mojo to it, you know, mm -hmm. your own sensibilities. And, and there's a lot of material to draw from, believe me. Mark, as I watched this movie again, uh, Father Stu, I, I, we've had your brother Jim on the show before. Tell me about the Wahlberg Foundation, Family Foundation, and how this all connects for you, the philanthropic work as well as your artistic work. When, uh, when I was able to kind of turn my life around and started to do good things, I just wanted to make sure that I could create opportunities for inner city kids and at-risk youth growing up in similar situations, and especially back home. I didn't want right. to forget about uh, kids back home because you're in a big city, you know, you have some of the best, you know, uh, college institutions in the world right there, but yet you don't mm -hmm. feel like you have any access to any of that, right? Mm -hmm. You either kind of got one or two kind of opportunities to get out and if not you're you're in for life and so i just wanted to create opportunities and, sh and be an example and then, mm -hmm. then my brother who has also had a very difficult uh childhood and upbringing you know we just share that in common and he's been now sober 30 something years Amazing. he's dedicated his life to serving god and serving people and so we just decided it was going to be something that we did together mm -hmm. and uh, you know he's very good at meeting and tapping into people who are, you know, um, in a position to be able to give. And then yeah. we utilize those funds and match them and do everything we can to, you know, yeah. create good opportunities for kids. Yeah. And let them see something outside of their world, yeah, where we come from. Mm. What's next, Mark? What are you working on now? Uh, we're just going to continue on, city to city, state to state, kind of, you know, showing mm -hmm. people the movie and getting people to kind of experience Stu and, and, and mm -hmm. his journey. And then uh, after that, I'm off to... Europe to make a movie and then um, kind of figuring out something else. All right. Yeah. What, and what are you working on next? Uh, well, um, I've got a couple other projects that I've that I've um, neglected while making this film, um, but I've I have another another project that I'm hoping Mark will inhabit. <laughs> she did such a good job with Father Stew that immediately before we had even really seen 
a director's cut. We saw an, a, oh. an editor's assembly. We were trying to make a three-picture deal with Rosie. Oh, well, yeah. I can see why. Yeah. I can see she was a good gamble, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Mel, your final thoughts on how do you think the, the, the various pieces that came together here, um, the faith aspect as well as the artistry and the unexpected director, how all of that conspired to enrich this story that could have very easily gone in a in a very different way. Yeah, well, it's not an easy story to tell. No, it's and, and it's not an easy story to tell well. Mm -hmm. So I think you start with the fact that you had someone who's able to tackle it, who's talented mm -hmm. at being able to express things, as you say, without actually expressing them right. fully and leaving the room. I mean, that's, that's an art that in one who so young has, has uh, I, I don't know where she got it from, but she's an old soul, and I've known her for a long time now. But Hang um, around with old people. Yeah, she hangs around with old people, she said. Yeah, good. But oh. <laughs> Don't we feel nice now? That. No, it's fine. Thanks a lot. I'm definitely up there. You could play brothers as easily as father and son. Any, any That's for sure. Yeah. I'm glad she referred to only the two of you. Go ahead, Mel. You were saying. I forgot where I was at. Well, how did it all come together? It was just like, there's a lot of providence involved. I mean, she's a deep thinker, so she was able to bring all her skill and who she is as a person to it. And and then give us things, give us little gifts in the roles. I mean, the humor. And oh, she's the funny. Humor is really, yeah. She's hilarious. I mean, this, it's funny because she's, uh, she's funny. But every step of the way, the powers of B have been at work, and intercession has been pretty clear and evident. Huh. Uh, and when the, stew when the stew story coming to me, um, me kind of going down all these different paths and ending up with them, us now kind of being in a situation where everything that I kind of hoped would happen has happened through a lot of hard work and again a lot of intercession mm -hmm. and so we've been you know lots of time and thought and prayer and you know and then the magic hmm. the magic so you really it's, prayed it's, this thing into existence oh absolutely absolutely hmm. yeah. well I'll leave it there it is a gift as you said it is a gift to, to I think viewers and certainly me it was uh, extremely moving and I think it touches people in ways they don't expect. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Happy yeah. Easter. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Easter. Thank, Thank you, Mark. Thank, Thank you, Rose. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, my oh, easy there. <laughs> Did his back, the back in. Don't do that. No lumbago. Father Stu, starring Mark Wahlberg, Mel Gibson, written and directed by Rosalind Ross, is out in theaters Wednesday, April 13th, during Holy Week. It's worth a look. My next guest is truly a legend in the music industry, teenager in love, the wanderer, runaround Sue. They've all become standards. Throughout his six-decade career, he's recorded well over 40 albums, the latest of which, Stomping Ground, was released late last year. But tonight, he's here to tell us about another project, the long-awaited stage musical based on his life and music. It's called, appropriately, The Wanderer. It's running now through April 24th at the Paper Mill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey. And it's a must-see. Please welcome back to the program member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Bronx's own Dion. Dion, thanks for being back on the show. I want to start with this new musical at Paper Mill, uh, The Wanderer. The, the, the run just started. Let's talk about the show itself. Now, you've been working on this for quite a while. And like so much else, I know it was delayed due to the pandemic. It's a jukebox musical that covers your tough upbringing in the Bronx, your rise to fame, and, of course, finding the love of your life, Susan. 
but it doesn't shy away from the dark side of your story, your battle with addiction and your faith. What is it like for you to sit in a theater and watch the story of your life play out on stage? Oh, Raymond, it's, uh, first of all, it's a joy to be with you. It's, uh, it's crazy you. to watch this show. It's just, it's so surreal, you know, to, uh, first of all, I gotta, I'll tell you a few things. Okay. You know, all my life, uh, I'm, I'm easy to figure out. You know, I heard Hank Williams and Jimmy Reed when I was a youngster and I, it, it, it hurled me into a place of enchantment and, you know, uh -huh. of, of pleasure and, and beauty and, uh, you know, delight. And I, all my life I've been looking for that inside me so I could find something and, and get it out physically to, to transmit that and bring others to that experience that I had mm. when I was alive. You know, so this show is like a two and a half hour trip that definitely uh, takes you through a range of emotions and uh, uh, wow. it, it takes you to a place of enchantment, you know. How did the idea for this musical come about, and how much input did you have in the production? Well, a lot. Uh, my friend uh, Charles Messina, who's a great playwright, he he's New York bred and born. You know, he walks the streets, and we we usually have lunch together. And one day he said, "Dion, how does a Catholic <laughs> Italian kid get n inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame?" And I started to tell him that there was no rock and roll when I was a kid. There was, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, and I, 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 I explained the journey and he never had paper in front of him or a computer. But one day he put this whole thing together and it, you know, just from our talks and, you know, it's, it's all about when he, when he, Hold it back to me. I saw the the early rock and roll history on the streets and the and the, mm. the you know the romance and the action and the betrayal and the overcoming and the laughs and the and the songs that he wanted to uh, insert that that really now when I watch it, Raymond, to answer your question, I'm watching it okay. and I say, no wonder people bought these records. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a journey, but I, I love that it's marrying the biographical background of some of these songs and uh, the life you lived and your part and role in rock and roll history, which shouldn't be underestimated. I want to give folks a taste of this, the great music. Here's a little number from The Wanderer Watch. from around around 
Wow. I, I can only imagine what it's like for you to watch this. I mean, it's like watching yourself, you know, reborn in a younger shell here, Dion. Tell me about the casting of these young actors, um, who some of them were literally born yesterday. Uh, Mike Wartella <laughs> plays you. Uh, did the actors get the era of the late 50s, early 60s right? Uh, uh, did you give them any notes? Yeah, Mike Wartella gets it totally. He gets, you know, because, you know, Chuck Berry was singing about schools and cars, and I was singing about tough stuff on the streets. I, I don't know, you know, like, and, and it was, it was, yo, it was black music filtered through an Italian neighborhood. It comes out with an mm -hmm. attitude. It's on the one. It's like, I'm the type of guy that it's hard, it's strong, it's tough. Because that's what the Bronx was, and that's what I brought into rock and roll. And he, he, he got into it immediately. But let me tell you a, a little story, Raymond. This is, this okay. is crazy. Christy Altamar, who is, you know, she played Anastasia. She had the lead in uh, Anastasia on Broadway. She, mm -hmm. she uh, plays uh, Susan, my uh, love, and oh, I'm still married. I just, we just celebrated 59 years of marriage. Uh, my child, yeah, I met her when she was 15. I was 17. So mm. I, actually, she was 14. I was 16. But anyway, Christy Altamar does an a cappella version of Teenager in Love in the second act. And wow. Raymond, I'm watching this, and I said, I never knew what this song was about until now. I've sung it wow. for like. I've sung it for 50 years. I mean, 60 years. <laughs> I, right. I never knew what it was about until I heard her sing it. Uh, it just broke my heart, you know? Uh, yeah, so well, this is the this is what I what I love about musicals is you know these performers and the and the 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 story in in context can break these songs open and give them new meaning that frankly even the writers don't know are there. I mean that's really what's happening here. Absolutely, I was talking to Bob Gordio about it, you know, from the uh, Four Seasons, and he was yeah. saying he experienced the same thing. He said when he watched the show, he said. I wonder why people bought these records, you know? They, <laughs> we were good. Yeah, you know? no, well, you know, Dion, music, musicals always are done with kind of a heightened sense of reality, and there is some artistic license. Uh, did they get the essence of you? And what yes. was it like when the rock and roll playbook was still being written? Did they capture that? They absolutely did, Raymond. Uh, Charles Messina, you know, because he's from New York and he... He mm -hmm. feels the streets and the sounds and the movement of it, you know. Uh, but I'll tell you, you know, immediate, this, the one thing that the play isn't about, you know, usually you get these jukebox musicals where somebody, you know, they're, they're brought up in this little neighborhood and, and they have all these obstacles and they work through them and right. ah, they're Carnegie Hall. This is not like that. We went beyond fame and fortune and uh, wealth, pleasure, power, honor, we said, hey, there's success and fulfillment are two different things. So we, we took mm. it a step above. The, uh, the musical is about transformation. It's about redemption. It's about enchantment. It's about mm. fulfillment. It's about hope. And I, I think that the country can use a... a you know, a story about hope right now.
I agree. Well, look, your faith also, which you've talked about quite openly on this show and other places, uh, th there's a scene in the play where Monsignor Pernicone, uh, that you share with him about suffering and surrendering to your faith, which saved you. How important was it to you that the show include that part of your story? It's everything, Raymond. You know, uh, my friend Ralph Martin wrote a book called The Fulfillment of All Desire. If you understand mm -hmm. the title of that book, you don't even have to read it. But, you know, uh -huh. Jesus Christ, he is the fulfillment of all desire. I couldn't plan this show if I tried. I really feel it's mm. God's show, and he's, I'm in the palm of his hand. I, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm in the hands of the one who holds the future. And I just sit back, I relax, and I enjoy it. And uh, wh where is it going? Is it going to go to Broadway? What's your hope for it? Well, uh, that's what they're hoping. Uh, you know, it's a step at a time. We just, uh, we do it a little at a time, you know. I think okay. I think it's a play that cannot be denied, and it, it's a hit. I mean, people are coming out. I'm promoting, I know, but what I'm hearing is I got to see this again. <laughs> so I said that's wow. a good compliment. <laughs> yeah, I'll say now, Dion. Before we go, uh, I have to ask you about your most recent album, Stomping Ground. Uh, this is a terrific follow-up to the Blues with Friends, which we featured before. Uh, this new album has an incredible lineup: Bruce Springsteen, Eric Clapton, Peter Frampton. Uh, it, th this is a sequel, really, to uh, Blues with Friends. How do you stay so prolific? You know, Raymond, uh, during the pandemic, with all the horror stories, and I know it was rough on so many, so many of my friends, and uh, you know, mm -hmm. just around. But for me, it was just crazy, crazy, a creative time. I had nowhere to go, Raymond. So I'm in the house, mm. and I must have stepped under the wellspring of creativity because I wrote 30 of the greatest songs I've ever written. Uh, wow. It's got to be God in my life because I couldn't plan it if I tried. So, so I, I started... It. I started doing these songs, and I, I send one to Eric Clapton. And I, he said, oh, man, I'd love to play on some. You, you were part of my musical wake-up when I was a kid. Yes, I'll do it. And he got on. And then the, I made friends with Peter Frampton. I never knew Peter Frampton, but one of the most wow. wonderful guys on the face of the planet, really a very cool guy. So, And then I had I you know, many friends like Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top. They all... Yeah, you know, yeah. they help me out, you know, just a lot. Joe Bonamassa has been great, you know. And, uh, you know, well, all these, it's an incredible uh, album. Thank I've you. I've been so listening much. to it in the car. It, it's, it's, it's as good or better than Blues with Friends, which I didn't think you could top. How do you keep these pipes in such incredible shape? You're what, 82 now, Dion? I hate to give your age, but you, you're timeless. I'm going to be 83 in July, but I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Raymond, I, I cleaned up my acts. Uh, 54 years ago, I haven't had a drink or a drug. I, I quit smoking. I was a mess in 1968. I was just, you know, I came to an end of my life on my terms. I don't live my life on my terms anymore. I just look up in the morning, <laughs> ask for some guidance, and say an hour farther, I go on my way. Put on the, the armor. <laughs> There and you go. Put it on and 
and off you go. Well, look, you're in great shape. I love the musical. I can't wait to see it. The stage musical, The Wanderer, based on the life and music of Dion, running now through April 24th at the Paper Mill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey. If you're in the Manhattan or Newark area, if you're traveling, you can get tickets and more information at thewanderermusical.com. Thewanderermusical.com and Dion's latest record, Stomping Ground, is available on all the streaming platforms and wherever music is sold. Dion, thank you for being here. Happy Easter to you, my friend. God bless you, Raymond. Thank you for the time, man. Thank you. She is chief legal correspondent for Fox News and host of Fox News at Night, as well as a best-selling author. Her brand-new book, the Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak Lessons on Faith from Nine Biblical Families is in bookstores now. Please welcome back to the program my friend Shannon Breen. Hey, Shannon. Now, th this is your second book on women in the Bible. This one focuses on these nine biblical families where the women are either mothers or daughters. How did you choose which women to include this time out? Well, we thought, let's look through the family lens for faith and see how that works in these women's lives. So we have mothers and daughters. We have spiritual mothers and daughters are people who come together through um, different circumstances, whether adoption or marriage or tragedy mm -hmm. in some cases. We have mothers and sons and we have fathers and daughters. So we're looking through all those different lenses and we thought it gives us a unique way to dig into these women's lives, get to know them better. And listen, some families are great. A lot of families in the Bible are dysfunctional, which I think should be encouraging because we can learn from both kinds of families and see that God was able to work uh, in both kinds of circumstances. Yeah. And you have some rather dysfunctional relationships here in this book, uh, including the relationship <laughs> between King Saul and his daughter, Michal. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us a bit about that relationship and why you chose to include this particular daughter in the story, in your book. So... Well, she is. This is a very complicated story. And if you want to learn how not to be a father to a daughter, this is the story <laughs> that you want to read. Because, listen, King right. Saul, I, I mean, I really think at some point he became mentally unstable, but he was not above using his daughters as pawns in these different mm. political schemes that he came up with. And uh, at one point, Mikhail is very much in love with David. It's one of the few things that we ever see in the Bible passages where we see a woman yearning or expressing this love or desire for a man. And she wants to be with him. Well, he continues to grow in stature, and Saul is very wary of him. He considers him a rival, mm -hmm. a threat to himself. So he goes ahead and decides, I'm going to marry off Michal to David, but I'm going to send him on all these dangerous missions and put him in all these horrible positions so he'll maybe get killed and I won't have to worry about him anymore. Instead, uh -huh. David again and again triumphs. They get married. Well, Saul doesn't stop trying to kill his son-in-law, like literally throwing spears at him and coming up with mm -hmm. plots that put Mikhail right in the middle of this very dysfunctional relationship where her father essentially used her to try to get to the things he wanted to accomplish by hurting mm. the man who was her husband. So if you think you have problems with your in-laws, you have nothing on King Saul, Mikhail, and David. Well, let's hope you have nothing on them. Now, you, you were familiar <laughs> yeah. with many of these stories before you sat down to write, obviously. What was the experience of rereading them through this lens and how had some of these stories changed for you on examination? 
Yeah, I do love that it gives you a different perspective because, you know, we start the book with Jochebed and Miriam, the mother and sister of Moses, and highlight mm -hmm. the bravery that these women had to have and remembering to reset the stage that they were basically slave women. They were Hebrew slaves under this oppression mm -hmm. of the Egyptians, of Pharaoh. And so they had really no freedom, no choices in their lives. In fact, the Hebrew women had been told, if you give birth to a baby boy, he must be killed and thrown into the Nile mm -hmm. River because God was prospering and favoring them. They were growing in stature and in number. And instead, Jochebed, when she held baby Moses, the Bible tells us there's almost a special vision that she had or discernment about him being a different child. And she made one choice that she could make that could risk her own life was to have this baby and to save him and to hide him. And then Miriam, her daughter, is part of the, the brave decision they made to this plot to preserve his life. And of course, he ends up being monumental in the history of Israel and of being the one who leads them on this exodus out of Egypt to the promised land. So women like that um, are courageous and pure and faithful. And it's great to see them and look at them through the lens of their relationship together. And the yeah. same thing can be said of women who came together who weren't blood uh, relatives, but Mary and Elizabeth, Naomi and Ruth, beautiful pictures of those relationships too. Yeah. One of the things you write about is women facing hardship and how they parallel the struggles of women today. And I want to read an excerpt uh, from the book. This is uh, the Virgin Mary escaping from Herod and fleeing to Egypt with Joseph and the baby Jesus. You write, the journey would have been long and exhausting. The young family, probably leaving their native land for the first time, set out across the rugged plains of Sinai, carrying a toddler, trudging through thirst and weariness across an expanse of sand and rugged hills. Now, uh, Shannon, there are obvious parallels to what we're seeing today in Ukraine, in Africa. What has it been like for you, having worked on this book and reporting the contemporary version of it night after night? Yeah, there is oppression around the globe, as you know. I mean, Raymond, you report on these stories, too. Um, it's mm -hmm. never ending. There's always somebody in crisis and in struggle. And so when I was writing the book, I talked about um, us having compassion and mercy for people who are refugees fleeing oppression and violence and poverty and all of these things um, that we somehow in our world have to figure out how to best help people and to really be Christ and be the hands and feet to them in their desperate need. But obviously, when I wrote uh, that book and was finishing up late last year, we had no idea what would be unfolding in Ukraine. So to watch it, I was immediately drawn back to that story of Mary and Joseph, where they had to grab baby Jesus in the middle of the night and take off because right. of that warning from God. And I think about these Ukrainian women who many of them, most of them are leaving their husbands behind and maybe their sons, mm -hmm. their older sons who can stay and fight. And they're grabbing their small children, maybe with the clothes on their back, maybe a diaper bag and taking off just trying to get to the safest, nearest border that they can get to, and they're showing incredible bravery. And just as mm. God was watching over Mary and Joseph and very much aware of their struggle and that journey that they made with no warning and with no planning, um, I, he sees the suffering of these women and of these families in Ukraine and other spots around the world. Um, he is not absent from suffering. He understands it. We know that because Christ walked this planet and suffered just as we do, we're told. Um, we have a high priest who knows our suffering. And that is a mm. comforting thing in watching this just destruction and devastation to these families.
That's terrible. Uh, in your book, you write about spiritual motherhood, saying, quote, uh, it involves guiding and leading someone in faith. Not all of us will be called to biological motherhood, but we can all exercise the role of spiritual motherhood. We can lead young women to Jesus by word and example, becoming a sounding board for their questions and our challenges. If they're still in our lives, let's be sure to thank them. Now, as a practicing Christian, as a wife with a demanding career, what is your advice on how to offer that spiritual motherhood to help women along their faith journey? I think you got to just show up in life, be vulnerable, invest the time in relationships, which we all feel pulled in a million directions with all of the obligations that we have professionally and, and personally, and mm -hmm. even in our, our churches and in our sanctuaries, there are good things and we have to find a way to balance them as best we can. But I know the relationships that I have with women who are more mature than me in the faith. And I look at them as spiritual mm -hmm. mothers or the young women God has brought into my life is such a blessing now navigating career and relationship. I think part of it is just living your life in a way that gives them a model or an example to look to, mm -hmm. but also being there when they have um, a, a horrible diagnosis or breakup or get fired or just need to make a difficult decision um, to listen to them, to pray with them, to offer them advice from scripture, because it's all there. God's promises and verses are there. And I'm so grateful for women who've poured into my life that way. And now in most cases, I'm on the other side of that, hoping to bring along young mm -hmm. women who, they, listen, they encourage me too. They are strong in their faith. This next generation is ready to change the world. And they're doing it. Shannon, who is the person you most relate to of all the women you've researched and written about in this book? You know, I tell this story and I we don't even know her name, but she's in the Gospels multiple times. And she's this woman who, when we meet her, has been suffering with an issue of bleeding for 12 years. She has no money left. She's exhausted every option. And to think about at that time period, too, she would have been considered probably unclean, like not she couldn't leave the house. She couldn't mm. go to the temple. She couldn't go to the market. Right. She's very isolated. And um, I've been open about struggling with some serious chronic illness and pain that I lived with. And I just love her story because what she does is think, I've heard about Jesus. He's got all these crowds now. He's performing miracles. And she thinks, I can just go touch the hem of his garment. That's going to be enough. She does that. She breaks all the rules, goes out into the crowd. She finds him and touches the hem of his garment. We're told immediately she's healed. Now, Jesus knew the power went out from him and that she had been completely right. healed. And he turns around and asks this rhetorical question, who touched me? We know he knows. And she falls mm. down trembling before him and in fear and confesses the whole story to him. And instead of judging her or berating her for what she's done, he says to her in all accounts, the very first thing is daughter. And he says, your faith has mm. made you whole. And he sends her away completely healed. And I love so many parts of her story because those 12 years of suffering and pain must have been horrendous for her and to be so isolating. Mm. But now she's able to go back to everyone in her community. They all know her story to say, this guy's the real deal. He's the son of God. I've been healed. It's a miracle. And so her pain wasn't for nothing. And also the fact that he telegraphs to her complete acceptance, though she's broken the rules, he says, you've done the right thing. And he telegraphs to everyone there who may have judged her if they knew her story to say, this woman is my daughter. She's done the right thing. Her faith has made her whole. I just love everything about that story. Yeah, well, I love that it's a woman, but we, as you said, we don't know her name. I, I would have yeah. thought Ruth or the Virgin Mary or that's an interesting choice, Shannon Bream. I like that. Mm -hmm. I do, too.
But before we go, I want to get your take on the Supreme Court. Uh, Judge uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson, you've been covering this entire hearing. She's expected to be confirmed as the first mm -hmm. black woman uh, to, as a Supreme Court justice this week, after a bipartisan group of senators voted on Monday to advance the nomination. As a reporter who covers the Supreme Court, what changes do you think we might see with this confirmation? How might it impact the dynamics of the court mm -hmm. as you see them today? Well, even people who tell me they're voting against her say they love her winning personality. She's very collegial. I mean, that stuff counts at the Supreme Court. You got to be brilliant. Mm -hmm. But you also have to be able to persuade other justices, you hope, um, with your intellect, but also with your personality to build coalitions, to get them to vote with you, to see your way. Mm -hmm. um, she may be good at that. We'll have to see how that um, you know, plays out. But a lot of people think that's going to be a big strength for her. She also brings a couple different things to the bench and that she's been a federal uh, defense uh, attorney. The fact that she's been a pro um, that she has been a public defender at the federal level with people like Gitmo mm -hmm. detainees. And that's a very different thing. We don't have anybody on the court who's done that. She's worked in criminal law. She's worked in a number of different areas that aren't the traditional path for a justice. So I think she's going to have a different take. And I'll be interested to see um, who her coalitions build up with. I expect she's going to vote with the left on most big cases. Um, mm -hmm. But she does have different things that she brings to the table, including a family that's full of law enforcement um, and, and their background. Uh, and so I, I do think she's got some unique perspectives. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we only know in time how they, you know, how they will rule and the impact they might have on those around them. But we'll see. Uh, what do you hope people take from this new book, Shannon? And what are you hearing from women, particularly? I hope they'll be encouraged and drawn closer to God, of course. But I hope that they'll mm. see through these families that are, you know, beautiful and stable and strong, and the ones that are really messed up and flawed. That God can still work through all of it. None of us is perfect. Mm. I am a sinner saved by grace every single day. But I hope that they'll look at these women and say, "Gosh, I can relate to that." These are things like infertility and widowhood, fleeing famine and war and danger, um, medical problems, financial problems, family problems. And I hope if they're struggling with any of those things or anything else, they'll see that God is faithful through that and that he promises us his faithfulness. Uh, he shows up and he works through even our biggest messes. Mm. Shannon Brain, thank you for being here. The Mothers and Daughters of the Bible Speak Lessons on Faith from Nine Biblical Families by Shannon Bream is available at bookstores everywhere and online. Happy Easter, Shannon. You too, Raymond. God bless you. Robert Royal is next, but first, some sad news. An 83-year-old American nun has been kidnapped from her convent in West Africa this week. Marianite sister Sue Ellen Tennyson, who is 83 years old, was abducted from her home in Yalgo, Burkina Faso, where she's been serving as a missionary. Her bishop reports that Sister Tennyson was taken sometime between April 4th and 5th by an unidentified gunman who also vandalized the convent she shared with two others in her community. Sister Tennyson is also a New Orleans native. She's been assigned to Burkina Faso since 2014. New Orleans Archbishop Gregory Amond has added his voice to the appeals for Sister Tennyson's safe return. Please keep her in your prayers. The ambassador to Ukraine just presented his credentials to Pope Francis as a secret meeting focused on targeting so-called opposition to Pope Francis is organized by progressives. Joining me now with analysis of these stories and more 
is the editor-in-chief of thecatholicthing.org, Robert Royal. He joins us from EWTN Studios in Rome. Bob, I, I want to begin with what Pope Francis had to say during his Wednesday audience this past week regarding this war in Ukraine. He says, after World War II, the attempt was made to lay the foundations of a new era of peace, but unfortunately, we never learn, right? The old story of competition between the greater powers went on, and in the current war of Ukraine, we're witnessing the impotence of the organizations of the United Nations. Bob, your comments and thoughts on the Pope's uh, observations here, and the Ukrainian ambassador, the Holy See, presented his credentials to the Pope this week. Uh, your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, I, I think this reflects a, a bit of naivete on the part of the Holy Father in the sense that the U.N., as we know in the United States, has never really been capable of dealing with crises like this. It's the great powers, it's the Security Council with the, the five permanent members and the rotating members that have to deal with crises like this, particularly warfare. And for me, it, it's actually unrealistic to expect war simply to go away or international mechanisms to stop international conflicts, because we live in a fallen world. Now, the, the Pope has been very uh, clear in his opposition to this war. I think he's done everything diplomatically uh, and otherwise. I mean, he even engaged uh, Patriarch Kirill a few weeks ago, which I thought was uh, such an important gesture on his part to uh, put a stake in the ground and say, no, you know, religion can't be used to justify uh, the innocent, the slaughter of innocents anywhere in the world. And during his trip to Malta this past weekend, uh, the Pope had this to say about Putin's aggression in Ukraine. He said, once again, some potentates, sadly, caught up in anachronistic claims of nationalist interest is provoking and fomenting conflicts, whereas ordinary people sense the need to build a future that will either be shared or not at all. Now, Bob, he is yet to call out Putin by name, but this is part of the uh, Vatican diplomatic stance always, because they want to be the peacemakers and perhaps facilitate some negotiation. Yeah, I, I think that that's fine. You know, the, the new Ukrainian ambassador, who's orthodox, by the way, uh, has said that the pope has done essentially everything he could possibly do. And I, I think we have to commend him for that. He's played a, a conspicuous role in trying to resolve this mm -hmm. situation. The trouble, like with the U.N. comments that we just, uh, you know, we just talked about, is to, to, to think that, that warfare has somehow become anachronistic. Um, you know, it's a sad thing to say this, but I don't believe warfare is ever going to disappear. I think it's probably a biblical perspective to say that it will not disappear mm -hmm. until the Lord's second coming. So, uh, sure, we can do certain things. Um, a, a potentate, though, can decide to do some things that um, seem to go back. You know, John Kerry made a similar remark that this is sort of a 19th century way to resolve problems. Well, you know, warfare and, and human greed and human ambition don't observe centuries. They, they are pretty much mm. constant across time. Yeah. The, the Pope also, um, he alluded to a possible trip to Kiev. You know, he's been invited uh, by the mayor of Kiev to, uh, to visit the country. I, I don't quite know how that would be possible, certainly not during an ongoing uh, war, but—and uh, there's been no timeline. But your thoughts on even musing about the possibility of such a visit? 
Yeah, I, I think it would be great if, if it can be worked out, if all the, you know, the details, he's safe and, you know, he is able to make statements there. I think this would be a, a tremendous thing. Now, the, the, what we have to recognize, though, is as in the consecration of Russia and Ukraine to the Our Lady of, mm -hmm. of Fatima, although Fatima was not mentioned very prominently in that consecration, there is this kind of Russian, um, let's say, bias against the Latin Church, against the Western Church. Mm -hmm. And in a strange way, the, the Russians themselves, Putin and, and his henchmen, may think of this as sort of the spiritual equivalent of a you know, a NATO presence in a, a country bordering theirs that they think should not be there. So I think from our perspective, I think it's a good thing for the Holy Father to show that support, to, to go there physically and, and to show mm -hmm. his support for those people in person. Whether it will have any effect in Russia, that re would remain to be seen. And I fear yeah. um, that his good intention might produce some bad reaction. Bob, this trip to Malta was originally scheduled for May of 2020, and it was to focus on the issue of migration. Now, the issue took more significance due to the exodus of over 4 million Ukrainian refugees in recent weeks. Uh, Pope Francis focused his remarks on the Mediterranean migration route and what he sees as Europe's flawed migration policies. He called for, a for the Mediterranean to be a, quote, theater of solidarity, not the harbinger of a tragic shipwreck of civilization, end quote. Uh, the pope has criticized often uh, European nations for their migration policies. How were those remarks received, especially in light of what we're seeing happening in Ukraine and outside of it these days? Well, as you know, the, the first visit that he made as pope was to Lampedusa, which is an island very, mm -hmm. very close to the African coast. And he was, uh, in, the, in the, the very beginnings of his papacy, he was advocating for um, more, more lenient uh, immigration uh, practices for people coming from Africa. For an American or, or, or for other people, I, I think the way to think about this is like the, our border crisis, where you could have huge numbers of people coming illegally into uh, the European countries. And that's why the individual countries themselves have been resisting. He's actually said it's a crime that they're resisting and that these camps in um, in Libya are like lager. They're like they're like the concentration camps that the Nazis ran. And of course, the situation is terrible there. But the difference, I think, with those that situation, which has to be managed, and the situation in Ukraine is, is that you you really do have people in, in immediate danger of losing their lives, and a mm -hmm. lot of those Ukrainians were going into Poland and and the Czech Republic and Slovakia, etc. A plan to return once peace returns. It's not going to be like this is a permanent invasion of a, a, a large number of people. Bob, late last month, a group of 70 cardinals, bishops, and theologians gathered privately for two days here in the United States at Loyola University in Chicago. Uh, it was an event that they titled Pope Francis, Vatican II, and the Way Forward. Now, the conversations reportedly focused on how the U.S. opposition to Pope Francis is connected to opposition to Vatican II. Now, it was organized in part by a progressive columnist at the National Catholic Reporter, a dissenting publication. Uh, we would normally ignore this kind of thing, but the guest list, I think, demands attention. Uh, Honduran Cardinal Oscar Rodriguez Maradiago was there, a confidant of the Pope. Uh, Cardinal Blaise Supich of Chicago, Sean O'Malley, even the papal nuncio to the U.S. was in attendance. Now, Maradiaga has been embroiled in, in charges of embezzlement. He described the conference this way. 
we have this, what they call, opposition to the pope. It's trying to build walls, going backwards, looking at the old liturgy, or maybe things before Vatican II. Vatican II is unknown by many of the young generations, so it's necessary to come back and to see that all the reforms of Pope Francis are rooted in Vatican II, end quote. What do you make of this comment and the focus here? Well, I think it manifests a certain touchiness, if I can put it that way, on the part of, of some of the Pope's main supporters. Look, I, you and I don't oppose Vatican II, although we probably were named by name in, in this conference as people who oppose what Francis is trying mm -hmm. to do. That's not at all true. There's an ongoing debate in, in the Church about the, the meaning of Vatican II. For, obviously, for intelligent people like John Paul II and Benedict, who are actually at Vatican II, um, there was one interpretation that tried to be more faithful to the actual documents. What we hear from people like this is something that really reminds me of more of the attitude of the 1970s, where everything seemed to be open and, you know, the, the, we were going to be open to the world and let in fresh air. That's not what people who were actually there felt at the, at, at the time. So, look, there's a debate about Vatican II, but to, to, to portray um, different views of what the Holy Father is doing as somehow a denial of a of a universal council of the church, I just think that that's the wrong framing of what's happening. Yeah. Well, according to reports, as you mentioned, EWTN and my name were taken in vain. Uh, the sad scribblers at the National Catholic Reporter have been for years, Bob, and they've written articles and books about this. Nobody reads them, but they've issued them. Uh, they've tried to establish some connections between moneyed Catholics and this network and this show in particular. Now, look, it's a cute conspiracy theory, but I'm telling you, for the record, it's completely fabricated. Unlike these periodicals, we merely report and we ask legitimate questions, I think we do it credibly and we present facts and quotes. I have also, and I say this also for the record, I have never cleared topics or editorial for the world over with anyone, including donors. But these people, they are professional liars, Bob, and now apparently they're coddled by these esteemed institutions and uh, even esteemed individuals who I suppose think this helps them politically in Rome. I don't know what the thinking is, but opposition is when you blindly hate a person and you allow that to color your perceptions, your language, your point of view, uh, you know, when you describe people as opposition or the enemy, uh, like this Sanhedrin meeting in Chicago. Now, we're engaged in credible analysis of church events, and we do it for our audience. I think, and I've always thought for 25 years, people are smart enough to see what's going on, whether I'm here or not. And that is, incidentally, that idea and that philosophy of reportage, that is why we have what they do not. It's called an audience. Bob, your final thoughts. And are there so many Catholics who are objecting and rejecting Vatican II that they're now resisting Pope Francis's agenda? Well, I, you know, I'm a, I've been the head of a think tank for over 20 years, a, a more or less conservative Catholic think tank. And whenever somebody wants to come to work for, for us, I tell them, look, the other guys have $1,000, maybe $10,000 for every one that we have. And if you look who attended that conference in Chicago, it's people from Boston College, from Villanova University, from uh, Fordham University. I mean, th th that group has got many of the Catholic colleges and universities behind them, chanceries, 
you know, all sorts of, of uh, resources. We, yes, of course, we do have some, some more conservative donors who try to support us, but it's not as if this is some massive secret. Every organization mm. has, has got, you know, financial backers of, of some sort or another. Now, to me, the, the, there's a sensitivity there, um, and they're surprised but because rel we relatively have few resources compared to what they have, and yet we have an influence, and I, I think you're right, and an audience, and that really kind of is a burr under the saddle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and but the, I, I do I do I have to laugh at this grand conspiracy theory. Look, uh, I, w one wishes that uh, traditional uh, organizations were as well financed and organized as, the, as these people imagine they are. Good luck, Bob. We will leave it there for commentary from Robert Royal. Visit thecatholicthing.org. Thank you, Bob. Okay, my pleasure, Raymond. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. Happy Easter. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.